0: One thing that we've seen with COVID is more virtual rotations, and and those have been open to international grads as well as as U.S. grads. You know, in the past, I think there was a lot of cost involved with international grads having to travel, um, and so that's you know I think that's been a, a good thing. So now you can compare uh, international grads, you know, kind of head to head with you know, U S grads that you feel like you're in a better position to evaluate.
1: Welcome to the people of pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strunk. on this podcast. We explore pathology laboratory medicine and forensic science. Recent statistics have shown that pathology residency programs have a higher percentage of international medical graduates than any other medical specialty. So the question becomes how do programs evaluate these applicants? My guest today is Dr. Ken Gatter. Dr. Gatter is a pathologist and co authored a paper on this very subject. We're going to talk all about this paper as well as his work with Medical Legal Partnership, which helped to provide free legal services that improve patient outcomes. All right, here's Dr. Ken Gatter. Where I want to start with you is you went to law school before medical school, and I'm curious about that. Like, did you always intend to do both?
0: No, no, absolutely not. You know, I I was a history major in college. And then after college, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Um, I ended up working in the Bronx district attorney's office for about two years, you know, as kind of a paralegal slash clerk, and then went to law school thinking I'd, you know, do something either at the DA's office or like a public defender's role or or something like that. Uh, So I, I, Medical school wasn't even on my on my horizon um, oh
1: okay uh,
0: you know I, I didn't know any doctors growing up and and it just wasn't something I really thought about. Uh, I remember not <laughs> doing very well or, or really liking you know chemistry and and biology in high school uh, so I, I really didn't think I would become a physician um, but if if you want to <laughs> continue the story so I, I ended up getting married during law school and my wife went to medical school. She was in medical school during my first job as a lawyer. I was a, in, a, in a law firm. And um, I thought that what she was doing was a lot better than what I was doing. So I quit and went back and, and took the uh, pre-med courses like chemistry and physics. And, and I remember that first week was a, oh, was a real panic time for me because, because, you know, I hadn't had math since like 10th or 11th grade in high school. And I, and I I was kind of worried that this might have been a bad decision, but it worked out. Okay. And so I ended up going to medical school.
1: Okay. I see. That's, that's a kind of a roundabout way to get there. That's interesting story. Um, so then going into medical school, I mean, was it, did, did you know you wanted to go into pathology? Did you have other specialties in mind?
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I'm i not sure I really knew what pathology was going into medical school. I, I had this vision of being a pediatrician. I like kids and we didn't have any kids. Um, but then two things happened. One is that we ended up having a first of two boys. Uh, so, you know, had a kid at home and then, you know, doing pediatrics wasn't really what I thought it would be. It was, you know, a lot of well child checks and, and and also then when things turned poorly for the kids that that was always really sad so i i crossed that off the list and then next was emergency medicine i thought that was kind of neat um and i was kind of gonna do that then as i mentioned my we got pregnant and i thought like well maybe something other than you know being gone every night (laughs) would be a good thing to do so i started exploring pathology yeah yeah which i'm really happy about now I, i tell you what in the beginning uh, I wasn't sure I made the right decision, you know, because um, I, I thought maybe, you know, I was, I was missing the idea of being in an emergency room. But but now um, yeah, I think it was it was a, a stroke of genius, really choosing pathology.
1: Like how did you discover pathology? What was your sort of first experience in in that specialty?
0: So a couple of things. One is that my wife is also a pathologist and she's a couple of years ahead of me. Right. And so okay, I just kind helps. of followed her, followed her tracks um, and the other thing, like you know most people, pathology is really interesting, the first and second year of, of medical school, uh, and then you sort of forget about it and and you also aren't really sure what a pathologist does. But I like it. I, I also was attracted to it, I think, because I like the idea of having cases that didn't go on forever. You know you have a, a case and you sign it out and and you don't have. Uh, these these um, sort of issues that that drag on for many years. That like internal medicine, I kind of got frustrated by that, and um, so I, I, I was attracted to the surgical specialties, and and that's what attracted me to emergency medicine is that you had, you know, sort of these these nice cases that had a a start and an end to them.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I I feel like that kind of relates to you, maybe your law practice as well, because it was the same. Isn't that the same kind of thing? You have a case, and there's a start and an end.
0: Well, that's that's a great, great point. Now, in fact, it was kind of the other way around because as if you know, a lot of these law cases go on for years and years, and that was one of my frustrations with um with practicing oh, okay. law. Um, I mean, I could have chosen a different specialty that maybe has more of a start and an end, but yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. And now you haven't really stepped completely out of law. It seems like because one of your your special area of interest is interaction of health and the law. So I'm curious about let's let's talk for a little while about this. So how did this interest start and what what are we uh, what are we talking about here?
0: Yeah, no, th- thanks for bringing this up. Right. So, you know, I, I go to medical school, uh, you know, my parents are wondering what I'm doing. <laughs> it, it, what were those years in law school just a complete waste and and I was thinking the same thing. You know, it'd be a shame to just throw that all away. So, so I started doing pathology and I wanted to somehow use my uh, legal background. Um, And I did it in a couple of ways. One is that I ended up teaching at a local law school, teaching like an introduction to health law. And so that was a way to to, you know, keep my foot in into the, the sort of health law area. And we had classes that so we managed to get classes with both medical students and law students in the same class, which was. Kind of, you know, some of the first classes like that, Um, and that was that was really interesting to have those two groups together and teaching one another, which was really, really nice. So I've done that, and I'm even now I did that for about ten years, not doing that anymore. Um, But now I'm I'm trying to have little seminars with uh, medical students on on recent topics. For example, we had uh, you know health law during the time of COVID, exploring the public health law aspects and. And where, where does the state's authority come from and, and things like that? Um, and right now, uh, we have a seminar going on with about 10 or 11 medical students exploring the, the recent Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe uh, and and all the, the sort of constitutional and, and other issues surrounding uh, abortion. So I managed to keep my area in that. And, and then more recently, probably the, the thing I, I'm most uh, interested in is that I've Uh, started uh, working with medical legal partnerships. Uh, We actually started the first medical legal partnership in the state of Oregon. Most states have them. And so Oregon was a little bit late to get to that. And so for your listeners who don't know or haven't heard about medical legal partnerships, they are a way to integrate lawyers and their legal services into that healthcare setting, you know, most ideally uh, like right into a clinic to actually have a lawyer present in a clinic. And usually it's a, a clinic that is uh, serving, you know, a population that is um, low income and, and more vulnerable communities. And so the idea is if you really believe in social determinants of health, you know, and, and sort of health equity, that a lot of people's healthcare problems and issues are tied to things that maybe traditional medicine doesn't address all that well. You know, things about housing and uh, employment and, you know, family law matters can lead to a lot of stress. And addressing those is the goal for medical legal partnerships. You know, most, a lot of poor people, you know, the only time they think about having a lawyer is if they get arrested. They never think of, of having a lawyer for some of these other problems. And in fact, they don't even know their legal problems. So the average, uh, you know, they've been studies and, and a lot of people have three to four to five legal problems and they don't know their legal problems. And so uh, part of the uh, job of a medical legal partnership is is sort of training folks in, that, in the healthcare system to be able to identify those legal uh, issues. And then, you know, write a, Sort of a consultation to to the lawyer that's down the hall to the left, just like you would for an orthopedic you know surgeon. If someone comes in with a broken ankle, uh, it's the same thing. You know, you identify instead of a broken ankle, you identify well. There's a a legal housing problem, and give them a a consult for for the lawyer. So that's I, I've been doing a lot of that lately, uh, and real proud that we we started the first one in in Oregon, started one at, at the NICU here uh, at the Dornbecker hospital as well. And, and so that's been, it's been really fun.
1: Okay. So it's, uh, some of it is, it seems like it's training that the healthcare workers, the doctors and the nurses to identify these problems.
0: Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, there, there's some <laughs> surveys out there, um, that, that help, um, but also just, uh, you know, helping, helping the the healthcare
1: team and it's helped
0: with burnout too. And, and, the, and, and it's really been a great sort of ride.
1: Okay. I see. That's interesting. And so have you seen like results of like better results for the patients or what, like, how does that, I guess, what's the end result for the patient? How does it help them?
0: Right. So, so there it's, we tried to study this, you know, on the kind of a return of investment angle to say that your healthcare dollars, you know, a patient's sort of high utilizing patients will, will, Go to the emergency room less if they have their legal issues addressed. We have sort of antidotal stories at our MLPs, but other places around the country have have shown that there is, you know, fewer emergency room visits and, and things like that uh, that comes out of it. And so, yeah, uh, better better health, and certainly the the patients, you know, appreciate it
1: i know you you sent me a a link to somewhere to a website about this and i was reading on there it said things like it's like improved patient compliance with treatment or medications and just improved health because of improved like housing conditions and things like that
0: right no absolutely and and this is you know there's a lot of crossover with what social work does um but if, if patients for example can't get a ride um to their clinic visit, you know they're not going to show up, and and so there's a there's it's sort of a similar kind of thing, and and also once um, patients you know understand that they have to show up, for example, you know showing up if you get called into court is like a big part of the <laughs> big part of the solution. Um, if you have a family law matter uh, and and you don't show up, then you know the court's going to rule against you, and so just educating folks about things like that. I think makes a big difference um, for sure.
1: Okay. I'll I'll definitely include a a link to the National Center for Medical Legal Partnerships. I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode. There's a lot of good information there and resources and things.
0: Oh, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, so you had a paper that you co-authored. It was published in the Archives of Pathology uh, back in August. And this was called The Challenges and Opportunities of Recruiting International Medical Graduates to Our Residency Programs it starts with screening for interviews. So let's go back to the beginning of that. Like how, how, and I guess, when did you have the idea that you you wanted to write this paper?
0: So I I got the idea that I wanted to write this paper as I was screening applicants and being frustrated. You know, it's, um, we get a lot of, a lot of applications and a lot of, a lot of those applications come from Uh, international medical graduates and they're just hard to they're hard to screen because a lot of the information I don't know what it means you know I don't know what's the quality of the medical school was Uh, maybe you get a transcript but you don't know how to I don't know what what that transcript really means and maybe they have some work experience after uh, they've graduated it's hard to know what that means and so I was you know frustrated and thought Maybe we can m- improve that process because if folks, you know, the interviewing decision, the, the decision whether to interview someone or not is really important. You can't get the residency slot. Uh, you don't get into the match unless you you have that interview. And so that first step is really important. It's a way to get a foot in the door for the applicant and, and for us. You know, we're probably missing some really good folks out there because we just don't know how to judge, how to evaluate. So that's what started it.
1: Okay. I see. And like, how long did it take you to sort of work on it before you submitted it to be published? So
0: I remember I wrote the bulk of it, uh, kind of at, at most of the ideas came pretty quickly, a day or two, and then, you know, went back and made improvements and, and, uh, you know, Mandy and I bounced Mm. ideas off each other. And, and uh, yeah, so the whole thing, I don't know, from the, you know, pen to paper to, when they approved it was probably, I want to say four or five months, maybe something
1: like that. Okay. That's pretty quick. Now, so the the paper identifies two problems with the screening applicants. And the first being that there are so many of them. So in your opinion, like what, what can be done uh, to sort of improve that?
0: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think that's one of the things we need to discuss, you know, things that have been proposed include CAPS, Caps on on the number of uh, places that a, a applicants can apply to. Um, I think that's a reasonable thing to to consider for sure. You know, there's no reason to apply to a hundred different places. I mean, it seems like then you're
1: um, then it's it's really kind of a crapshoot, right? So, and what about something like like I know there's you know a limited number of residency spots in each program. Is there has there been any talk about maybe increasing that or that there's that and like not feasible.
0: So increasing the number of residency slots available. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. I think that's, that's something our institution just did. We added two. Uh, I think it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, There are a lot of things that go into that decision. One is that uh, I think the office of uh, GME looks at, at the region and the need for pathologists, you know, how many pathologists are needed in the area. You don't want to be training, folks who then complete training and then can't get a job. Um, So there's, there's a lot that goes into that. And I, you know, I don't, I think maybe on the kind of on the fringes that, that will address the problem, but it's not really going to address the problem of having, I think we had over 500, you know, applicants uh, for just a few slots. And and so that, that number, our number of slots goes up one, that's not really going to make a big
1: difference. Okay. Is that, you said 500, is that, that's Sounds like that's been increasing over the last few years.
0: Yeah, I think it has been increasing um, over the last few years.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Ken Gatter. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zuroff, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists like us for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. And now back to Dr. Ken Gatter on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, so the second problem uh, that the paper identifies is that there is limited information about the applicants. And you kind of mentioned this a little earlier, too. And it, and it also says that COVID it made this problem even worse. Uh, can you talk about that?
0: Sure. So there is limited information about applicants, as she's as mentioned. Uh, <laughs> I mentioned it before, just because especially you know, when we're talking about international uh, grads, because you d- you don't know about quality of the school, you don't know how what their pathology department's like. You just don't know. You don't have a good idea of what level folks are coming in. You know how much pathology do they know, and so that that makes it difficult. COVID, I think, has had both sort of a positive and a negative influence on this. I think one thing that we've seen with COVID is more virtual rotations. And, and those have been open to international grads as well as, as U.S. grads. You know, in the past, I think there was a lot of cost involved with international grads having to travel. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's been a, a good thing. So now you can compare uh, international grads, you know, kind of head to head with, you know, U.S. grads that you feel like you're in a better position to evaluate because you you know about their Medical school, you know about their pathology program, and and you have a better understanding of of how they, you know, what their lives are like, and and maybe what kind of obstacles they've overcome. So now it's a head-to-head comparison, which is nice. The disadvantage, though, is also that you know I'm not virtual rotations are great; they have great potential, but they're not exactly the same. They're not the same as a resident actually being in you know, your program or a medical student rotating actually in your program where you have that real person to person interaction, you see how they, you know, how they do in, in kind of a real work life situation. So it's been both a, a, a plus and a minus, I think, but maybe, you know, moving forward, we can sort of try to um, capitalize on, on the positive aspects of, of both the Increase numbers of virtual rotations uh, and and try to get a better handle on what uh, international medical grads are, what their you know applications actually tell us.
1: Yeah, it seems like keeping maybe a sort of a hybrid version of that with some of the the virtual stuff still continuing it seems like that would be a positive and i've even seen like where i work you know having a pathologist is kind of walking through the lab with their you know cell phone and they've got somebody on on zoom or something and they're kind of showing them around virtually virtually like that <laughs> but that seems it seems like that opens up more opportunities for more applicants
0: oh absolutely yeah absolutely and so uh, yeah so that's good and i think also it allows applicants to to know more about various programs and the programs to know more about uh, applicants through Zoom and, and other ways of doing it. And so then it kind of goes back to how do we limit the number? And, and so maybe it does make sense to cap the number. You know, if if folks have a are in a position to, to make a good decision about, you know, which, I don't know, 20 programs or 10 programs, whatever the number is they're going to apply to, then it, that seems like it, it seems more fair than just You know making people cap it up front when they don't know that much about the
1: programs okay I get it yeah that that makes sense all right you know there is a positive aspect of recruiting international medical graduates and then you mentioned this in the paper and talk about it uh, quite a bit and that's being that it kind of naturally or sort of I guess organically increases diversity in pathology because you've got residents from all different countries around the world And so I want to talk about this because I think it's important. Let's talk about why this is such a good thing.
0: Yeah, thanks uh, for asking that question. I think that was probably the primary motivation for me to write this was to remind folks that it's a good thing that pathology has a lot of international medical uh, graduates. Yeah, I wrote this, this was during COVID. I wrote this and there was a lot of um, emphasis during that time on diversity, inclusion, and equity. And I thought, well, this is, you know, we have in pathology the good fortune to be able to have a lot of uh, international grads uh, coming to our programs. And so now let's just, you know, do a better job uh, with that, do a better job being able to um, pick the best applicants, both for the program's benefit and also for the applicant's benefit. Um, to match, make that match as good as possible. You know, I think in the past, sometimes uh, I remember coming up and sometimes people thought like, wouldn't it be nice to have more U.S. grads? And and sure, I, I, U.S. grads are great. But if we aren't getting uh, U.S. grads, then I, I don't think it's a, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to have graduates from the international medical schools because as you mentioned it is sort of a what did you say It's sort of an organic way to increase diversity and and equity i think
1: yeah and i think i think it says in the paper that pathology has more international medical graduates than any other specialty
0: i think that's right yeah that's i looked at the uh, at the data about this you know it's it's kept they keep track of this kind of thing and 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 that's that's right yeah
1: okay i guess that i mean that's sort of that I guess might have a positive and a negative too, because it's, it seems like there's, okay, there's less U.S. grads interested in pathology, but we have more diversity. So it's, it's, uh, I I guess it depends how, you know, what perspective you want to take on that.
0: (laughs) Right. No, it it definitely does. But I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons, um, why we might want to have more diversity and, and why international medical school grads, I think are a good thing for pathology one is that it actually probably i think it can increase uh recruitment right here at home you know so for example uh, in my institution uh if uh um, med students see you know great residents from from other places and our medical students are very interested in in diversity and and equity uh issues and so you know we as pathologists we we've come across as great. You know, we, we are embracing the diversity and, and equity. Um, so I think there's, there's an advantage actually in, uh, recruiting, uh, as long as it's framed the right way.
1: Okay. I see that makes a lot of sense. All right. That's good. Something else that's mentioned a- again in the paper is, is using the holistic approach to a screening to screening applicants. And I'm curious about this and how, how it sort of differs from, the, I guess, the traditional screening approach.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know the AAMC um defines this and, and promotes having a, a more holistic view and and I I think that um the the idea is I understand it, you know I'm I'm not really an expert on this I, I wrote that paper um but I've been looking into it and it seems like the idea is to be a little bit more flexible um to be really sort of individualize your assessment of each application and and consider things that maybe in the past weren't considered. Uh, Things like, you know, what have they overcome uh, getting to med school? So so moving away from uh, strict reliance on board scores, for example, moving away from strict reliance on, you know, sort of medical school rankings. Uh, where someone comes from a highly ranked medical school and has a high you know board score well automatically we should rank them high you know maybe maybe there's someone who's really hard to work with maybe it's someone who's you know a great candidate so so that the the examination of their application doesn't end there you really need a holistic uh assessment um of of that person and and take into consideration jobs they've had you know and 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 where their letters of recommendation come from uh and and just it takes more time i think uh but i think it's at the end of the day uh, a better way to to move forward it seems like more people a chance
1: yeah it seems like that'd be it would be like you said it takes more time there would be a little bit more difficult until there's sort of uh, like standards of how to evaluate those things and like it just seems like it would make your your job more difficult, at least at the beginning. Does that does that make sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. No, I think I think you're right. You know, I mentioned standardization as you pointed out yeah. a lot in in the paper because I think that's that's my frustration. Is like you want to do this, but but you don't have the tools to do it. Right. And and unless there's standardization, whether that's, you know, like like the CAP accredits labs, for example. Right. That's a form of standardization. Um, And so maybe you could have some kind of standardization or accreditation of medical schools around the world. And so, you know that these medical schools have met certain criteria or these, you know, some people have completed various programs and you don't know what they mean. And so to to have those standardized to have just more. Uh, head to head comparisons where you can evap- make a better decision about each individual applicant, you know, as you're going through this holistic review. Um, because you can't really do the holistic review. That's the appeal really of relying on, uh, board scores, you know, because they, they seem objective. Um, okay. but as you probably know, there's a lot of criticism about board scores. Maybe they just only seem objective. It's kind of like the SAT scandal, which was in the newspapers uh, a while ago where, where, you know, wealthy folks have tutors and and take the SATs a, a bunch of different times. And, and says so no surprise that their scores are higher. Is that really an objective value? I, I don't know. So it's I think it's pretty complicated.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. This brings up issues like, you know, privilege and kind of social uh, social environment and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we'll see. I don't, you know, I don't know where we're going to go. I mean, I think it'd be nice if we had our, you know, like the CAP or, or, you know, various other national organizations would, would maybe start discussing this and and give us some guidance. That'd be great.
1: Okay. Yeah. And that that makes sense. I mean, you you kind of end the paper with this sort of call for a conversation about you know, how screening of international medical, medical graduates is done and what changes should be made. I mean, like, how do you, how do you get a conversation like this started?
0: I don't know by writing a paper.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, um, yeah. So that, that would, you know, if, if anyone listening to this podcast, uh, has a way to do it or some ideas, um, please, you know, contact me and, uh, and I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have moving forward. It would make, you know, in the long run, it makes all of our jobs a little bit easier and our uh, programs better because we'll be able to get uh, the good, good
1: residents. It definitely seems like the sort of the environment these days is, you know, this is the time to have conversations like this and to start moving on uh you know, on projects and objectives like this for sure.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the time is right. And pathology, I think, is at an interesting place. Uh, There's a lot of technology, you know, there's AI, there's we're really moving to digital pathology quite a bit. And so, you know, that expertise and, and the ability to, to have the creativity to move forward in a way that uh, makes pathology better, I think uh, is important. And I think having a diverse sort of pathology force from different backgrounds will really help our profession move forward, not just in the short term, but definitely in in the long term, you know, And, and that will help patient care and it will help pathology. And it's a it's a real win win situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that, makes a lot of sense. makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, Dr. Gatter, this has been a real, real interesting conversation. I, I think these are important topics and I'm glad we had the uh, opportunity to discuss them. Uh, before we wrap up, wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to mention that I haven't asked you?
0: Um, no, no, I really appreciate you doing this by the way. I think, um, you know, you spreading the word of pathology is, is important. Uh, we, um, uh, Struggle a little bit getting a lot of medical school, uh, app, you know, students, uh, going into pathology. Usually we get, I don't know, two, maybe three, uh, a year out of a class of 160. And, uh, and, and that's too bad, you know, because I think it's a, it's a great profession. And I think, um, there are a lot of medical students who, if they knew more about it, would, would like to be pathologists. And, and there's, there's often folks who choose other specialties who down the line, you know, 20 years into their profession, say like, ah, should have been a pathologist. So, um, so what you're doing is, is, is helping spread the word. And, and I applaud that.
1: All right. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kent Gatter. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. If you're looking for another episode of the people of pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a trailer from my interview with Dr. Natasha Savage, as we discuss a medical student's guide to pathology. Why do you think it was it was necessary to kind of point out sort of the contrast between pathology and other other medical specialties?
2: Most medical students, you know, they in their core curriculum they learn about pathology. We. Get up there and teach them about, you know, how in the lab, how is rheumatoid arthritis diagnosed and what does a granuloma look like and what's the differential diagnosis, etc. But it's not really what a pathologist does on day to day. We teach them what pathology is, but I don't think it's a really good snapshot into what a pathologist actually does in a day to day. And the vast majority of your medical students will never do a pathology uh, rotation. It's not required. And, um, you know, there's limited time to do electives, so they frequently choose to do something else. And because of that, we we really don't get an opportunity to show them what a pathologist is. We don't get an opportunity to, to sell it. So I think papers like this are super important to show a medical student, what is the career like? What are we doing? Why is it a great career? Why you should consider it?
1: You can hear more from Dr. Natasha Savage in episode 81. All right, great big thanks to Dr. Ken Gatter. This was a really interesting conversation and I really like the idea of pathology being more diverse because of the fact that we have so many international medical graduates in our specialty. But as Dr. Gatter mentioned, it does make it more difficult for residency programs. So I hope that his paper and this podcast can help get that conversation started and maybe we can see some more standardization in that area in the near future. I also found it interesting talking about medical-legal partnerships, and of course, this applies not just to pathology, but to all of healthcare. And from what I've read, it helps to improve patient outcomes, patient compliance, and to lower overall costs of healthcare in general. So those are all great things. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at peoplewithpath, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.